Here's a sneak peek of what we have today. You know, in practice, how do you go from, you know, being, you know, a third year dental student and never having talked to a patient, where do you start to try to implement this kind of stuff? Fake it until you are it, as a yoga teacher told me. Not till you make it, till you are it. Recognizing your emotional state and that of the patient. Be organized, because when your clinic space is organized, your brain is organized. There's a lot to know about in dentistry. We should be having discussions about business, entrepreneurship, and innovation. So let's start right here, right now. This is the business of drilling. All right, so welcome back to the business of drilling. We're really excited to have everyone listening in today. We have a very, very special guest, Dr. Bruce Freeman. Bruce is an honors graduate of U of T. He completed the advanced education general dentistry program at the Eastman Dental Center in Rochester and returned to U of T to complete his diploma in orthodontics and his master of science degree in the field of temporomandibular disorders and orofacial pain. He's also co-director of the facial pain unit at Mount Sinai and lectures internationally on clinical orthodontics, facial pain, patient experience, and virtual surgical planning. Bruce maintains a private orthodontic practice with an emphasis on surgical and pre-prosthetic orthodontics. And Bruce is a certified yoga instructor with additional training in breathing techniques, meditation, and trauma-informed movement. He directs the wellness program for hospital dental residents at Mount Sinai, emphasizing how self-care leads to the best patient care. Bruce Freeman, how are you doing? Thanks for having me. Uh, great. I'm like uh, interested to see what we get, what we end up talking about today. I'm sure we have an idea and then it won't go that way and we'll talk about something else, but we'll see how it goes. <laughs> so Chris, Jury, how are you guys doing? I'm good. I'm good. It was a packed intro. I'm, 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 uh, I'm excited to dissect uh, all the things Bruce does. Things Bruce does. It's crazy. I'm doing great. I'm excited for this talk. Um, yeah. Why don't we start off with just your story and tell us about, you know, how you got to where you are today. Every, every time someone says, tell me your story, I have to embellish, you know, I grew up in a, you know, in an isolated farm somewhere, you know, trying to make it sound better than it is. But, um, I grew up, I, you know, I grew up in a time where, you know, if you did decently in school, you had a choice of, uh, you know, a grand total of three careers. You could be a doctor, dentist, or lawyer. Um, and people, people used to take the LSAT, the DAT and the MCAT, and they'd apply to everything. And then it was just, you know, a lottery system, whatever they got into and, Hey, that's my chosen career. And then they wondered why at the age of 40, they woke up with a crushing pain in their chest and realized it wasn't a heart attack, but a panic attack. Because, you know, if I say to you, and I always tell people your age, I always say, mark in your calendar, the day you turn 40 and write, I suddenly woke up 40. And what I mean by that is when you turn 40, you're suddenly going to wake up that morning going, what in that, like, what, how, how did this happen? <laughs> how did I become 40? You know, a classmate of mine said he was, you know, he's listening to his music. He was walking down the street. He was having a great day. He stopped at a light and he saw his reflection in a car window. And he says, who's the old guy? You know, all of a sudden it, it catches up with you. So it's about you know, recognizing you really, you know, it is that seize the day, you know, the Robin Williams movie, you know, with uh, Carpe Diem, the whole thing. It's about trying to just figure out who you are first and what you want to do. And if it's not working, make a change. And that's when you're younger, you know, if I say think of the future, you think I mean next Friday, you know, but I really mean think of the future, the big, you know, the big picture, which sometimes is scary and sometimes is hard to do when you're, you know, piled under books and such. But sometimes you just have to take a step back because I think the biggest problem is we 
we see ourselves through an external lens, through the eyes of everybody else, not internally. So I made a lot of decisions in my life that people looked at me like I was nuts. Um, so I went to dental school, fine. Then I wanted to do an internship or specialize. And uh, someone said to me, go to Rochester, the Eastman Dental Center. Uh, I said, the, the who, the where? I mean, when I, as I told you yesterday, when I applied to dental school, I didn't even know there was more than one. So, you know, when someone tells me about this program, I'm like, what? There's a program? What, like, what does that involve? So I actually, at the hospital, I now work quite a bit and, and help train residents. I was accepted into the, um, into, uh, the uh, what you call it, the uh, residency program, hospital residency program. And Dr. Baker, the late, great Dr. Baker, called me. And, you know, when you got in there, you had been anointed. You know, it was like you, the, the gates have opened. <laughs> And he said to me, oh, we'd like to offer you a position. I said, oh, when do you need to know by? Because I was waiting to hear about Rochester. And there, there was this silent pause. And he said, I don't know. Nobody's ever asked me that question before. And I said, oh, OK, well, I'll call, you know, call you as soon as I know. Me being completely stupid. Um, and I ended up going to uh, the Eastman Dental Center. And it turned out a friend of mine, her husband was doing his postdoc there for his PhD. So the person I was partnered with in dental school, who um, is actually a periodontist in London, Angosios, we ended up going going to the same internship and then specializing. Um, after that, I decided I wanted to go back to school, applied to ortho again. I didn't even know how many ortho programs were in, were in the country, in the world. I didn't even know where I could apply. So I applied to a couple, not knowing any better because there was no such thing as an internet search and uh, ended up back at U of T. Then I thought, hey, maybe I'll do my master's did my master's. And, you know, when I went to Eastman, people thought I'd lost my mind, that I, I ruined my career by turning down Mount Sinai. I mean, and now I work there. So sometimes you have to take some chances and you just don't know. And you have to do, you know, there's that Malcolm Gladwell book about trusting your gut. And you really need to, if you're sitting there and thinking about dating somebody or making a career change and in your, in your gut, you're like, oh, oh, this oh, don't do it. You really have to listen to your own intuition. And as I just said a moment ago, try to try to look inside you. And this is yoga philosophy for sure. 101. Look inside for those answers. Don't always look externally for those answers because everybody has an opinion. And you'll get it if you ask it. So you have to do what you think feels right. It's okay to ask questions and have a mentor, of course. I mean, you know, I'm big on mentorship. But at the end of the day, how you view yourself, who you are as a person, the type of practice you want to do, that, that has to come from within. And I learned that when I went into, when I graduated, somebody was supposed to look after an ortho clinic and she couldn't. And she said, can you do it for the day? And I mean, the, you know, the ink was still drying on my diploma. And I was like, oh, sure, I'll do it. And I went in there with my shirt and tie. I don't know. It took about 10 minutes between that sweat started dripping down my back. There were three hygienists. The waiting room is packed. Act. I'm thinking, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> you know, I just graduated and I, you know, I got through the day and I said, holy hell, I am not practicing like this. This is not for me. And it was great that I made that decision. And I opened up my first office after associating a couple bad associateships. And again, you learn more from the bad ones than the good ones. And I had some really bad ones. Um, I opened up an office that was 600 square feet with two staff. And then I'd go to the American Association of Ortho Conventions and everybody's got 20 staff and matching golf shirts. And I'm thinking, 
boy, am I a loser. And then slowly but surely, I realized, no, I'm not. I have control. And people with massive offices would sometimes say sometimes they wish they had a smaller office. And a few years ago, I had to, I had to move my office. About, I think it's like five, six years ago. And people said, oh, you're going to expand, right? I'm like, oh, yeah, it's, it's yep, going big this time. So I went from 600 square feet to 692 square feet. And uh, so big expansion. And um, to this day, I don't own my office anymore. It's run by two amazing orthodontists, Brad Lands and Camilla Caro. Um, and still two assistants, two, two receptionists, no hygienists. We do every bracket band wire ourselves. And that's, that was my choice to have that connection and time to sit with patients. And uh, then I ended up in facial pain. That was sort of an accident because uh, I stopped doing one master's project, was without a master's project, needed to find a new master's project and uh, ended up in the facial pain clinic. And I've been there forever since started there in 1993 or four, I think, and uh, did my master's and uh, just sort of never left. And here I am today talking to you guys. So what's, what are you involved in from the day to day now? Right. I mean, you've come so far. What does your career look like now? Well, you know, everybody laughs and says, are you retired? I'm like, oh yeah, really retired. Um, every Monday I go to the hospital, I work with the residents and the ortho residents will come over and, uh, so it's just, we call it facial pain Mondays. It used to be facial pain Tuesdays. Now it's facial pain Mondays. Uh, that's like my one post on Instagram now <laughs> since I deleted it off my phone. Um, so facial pain Mondays and uh, just managing facial pain patients, diagnosis and treatment. A lot of it's psycho psychology, listening and hearing what it's like to live with chronic pain. And uh, I think that's what the residents, if you ask them, say they learn the most is about how to talk to patients, which I've made every mistake in the book. Um, and that's what prompted me to do a lot of reading. Two ulcers later, I figured out what I was doing wrong, or at least a lot of what I was doing wrong. And then uh, I work a couple uh, days a month at the ortho office now run by Brad and Camilla, focusing primarily just on the sort of more interesting, bigger, bigger cases, pre-prosthetic surgical cases, the multidisciplinary ones. Um, I get to assist in the operating room um, with uh, our orthognathic cases. We do all the virtual planning. So I get to, uh, I get to watch uh, the amazing Carl Cuddy, one of your uh, alumni and um, uh, Brian Rittenberg, uh, two amazing surgeons get to watch them in action and uh, work a lot with uh, Andrea Johnstone. Again, one of your alumni, a uh, phenomenal periodontist. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's great to work with people from different schools, different backgrounds. And then I teach the yoga class for free once a week on Wednesday nights. And uh, what else do I do? And then coaching people, trying to further their careers, either get into professional school or specialize. And uh, what else? started doing some blogging, podcasting, as you can see here, putting people to sleep. Um, anytime I send my blogs or podcasts, I say, this will cure your insomnia for sure. Just listen to my voice for about 10 minutes. You'll sleep like a baby. And uh, so I always try to keep busy. I always try and, I guess, reinvent myself um, and uh, just try new things. I think that's what keeps your mind, your mind alive. And that's why about six years ago, I started learning Italian. I thought, why not? You know, just I, I wanted to learn another language, try to keep Alzheimer's at bay, you know, try to do crossword puzzles, whatever. <laughs> but yeah. uh, how does one just decide to learn Italian? <laughs> I, well, I, I that this was back in the day with uh, CDs. So I started on like it was called the Pimsler approach. 
And then I went to Italy and try, took these one-on-one classes and the teacher looked at me and she's like, where did you learn this garbage? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) This is the only, only outlet I had. And then, um, and then I just started doing online courses. Then I did like one or two weeks at a time with immersion. And then I have, uh, I still have a teacher once a week now and uh, chat with friends. I try to read and write in Italian. I read books in Italian and, you know, with varying degrees of success, but uh, I may, I am able to read and write with uh, pretty good comprehension. And once I get moving after an espresso or two, um, I can, I think I can speak. Okay. Um, and it's nice. It's a, it's a way to, it's really interesting way to connect because sometimes you'll have a little old grandmother at the hospital who's been in pain and she has to come with a child, one of her children who has to take time off work and they're, you know, and they, start speaking in Italian and then I join in, I mean, you know, they just look at you and and it's such a relief. I don't know if any of you, I think all of you must speak a different language. Do all of you speak a different language? Yep. Yeah. I think so. So, Do you speak a different language? No. 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 (laughs) I hate myself for it though. (laughs) I hate myself for it. It's never too late, but when you, when you, when somebody's struggling and you just say, you all of a sudden say, Hey, I can help you in their language. I mean, they, you know, tears come to their eyes sometimes. They're just so happy somebody understands them. And it's yeah, that understanding. Uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but I hear that no, like, no, no. even even a few words, like you're speaking a little bit of someone's language, even if that's all you can speak, it like calms them down. You know, I even know how to say a few words in Greek or, or Farsi or anything, and it makes a big difference. It was very funny because I I had uh, we had a Persian lady came with her I think her friend and they were they were chatting in Farsi during the consultation and uh, at the end and I'm probably to the Persian listeners I'm probably going to butcher how I say this but I'll try my best um, and at the end I said oh thank you very much for coming in da, 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 da. and they said I and they said no thank you and I said oh you know I think is you know my butchering of you're welcome and and they just like their eyes like like wide because I don't know what they were saying during the consult maybe they were saying god this guy's an idiot but I don't know but and then I walked out and I heard them say to Dr. Lance does he speak Farsi and and so Brad says oh he, he knows he knows a lot of languages <laughs> and that was the end of the conversation so it's always nice hey if i'm on an elevator and people are speaking in chinese and when they laugh i laugh and they always look at me like yeah right but um, <laughs> you always want to be part of the conversation a little you, wrench know? In the, you know yeah exactly see how they react no that's a that's a really important point you're making right because you're very big on communication um yep. and how important it is to you know establish that sort of connection with your patients and you know we were talking yesterday but one of the big sort of themes that came out of that was you know if uh you can be a phenomenal clinician, you know what I mean? Like you can do a plus work all the time, but you know, if you can't talk to your patients, if you can't calm them down, if you can't match their emotional state in that moment, right. And kind of understand them and show them some empathy, you're not really going to get any, like anywhere. Right. And, um, that really hit home because we're, uh, we're starting to see patients in clinic now. Right. And it's kind of getting real. We're like, okay, yeah. Like people are coming in and a lot of them are worried. Some of them don't care. Some of them are like, yeah, I love this, whatever. But, you know, other people like kids, especially they're, they're the ones that are worried about it. Right. So where can we go from there? Like, how did you start teaching yourself to be approachable 
for patients? Well, you know, as you said, I, you know, I am a talker and it's very funny. I'll talk in front of 150 people. Then I have to go back to the hotel room and sleep. I, I don't I was like, Oh, join us for dinner. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. I just want to go home. Thank you. Um, but learning how to talk to patients, like I said, a friend of mine, I don't know where he got the quote. I'm paraphrasing. He says, you know, um, you know, uh, healthcare without healthcare without communication is 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 veterinary science because you know you can't talk to you know you can try to talk to the animals if you're Doctor Doolittle, but uh, in general you can't talk to the animals. Um, but you have to be able to talk to humans. And now we're swathed in layers of PPE. That's why it's important to have a picture of yourself on your on your clinic gown because otherwise you're faceless. So if they're unhappy, you're faceless. You're an object. You're not a person to them. And especially in orthodontics, people always brag about, oh, I don't even go into the room anymore. The treatment coordinator goes in and, hey, what works for you and your patients, that's great. I just know that did not work for me. So our consults in our office still remain 30 to 45 minutes, upwards of an hour sometimes for an adult. And it's about them getting to know you because I was lecturing in the U.S. once and there were, I always joke, I call it the U.S. dental uniform, cotton dockers, blue button down shirt, topsiders. And um, I, I said, one day I'm going to open up a booth like that at the conventions. I'm going to make so much money selling button downs and, do and cotton dockers. But uh, I said to the guys, you all kind of look alike. So if you come into the room for five minutes and leave, why would I pick you? Why would I put my health and money in your hands? I don't even know anything about you. So I'm just going to go with whoever's less expensive or accommodates me the best because you're not distinguishing yourself from anybody else. Because at the end of the day, I always say to people, you know, who's your biggest competition? And they always say, oh, other dentists and this, that, and the other. And it's not, it's, it's the four seasons, it's Disney, it's the Ritz, it's where you have a great experience. So Every dental office roughly does the same thing. They do what? Dentistry. But it's the experience I have getting that dentistry done that makes the difference. Otherwise, it's, it's all the same. And then you start to do things and then people respond to you, but you don't understand why it's working. Or you're not even aware that they're responding to something in particular. So let's do something easy. We'll talk about, and this is going to help. You know, I always like to make sure there's at least a couple things that people walk away with. So let's say a patient comes to you, Vlad, and says, oh, Dr. Vlad, I'm so nervous about getting this filling done. And you're like, don't worry. I've done this, you know, let's say in the future. <laughs> I've done this twice. I've done don't this worry. five times on a plastic tooth. You <laughs> yeah, <be> no. <laughs> so let's look into the future. And you say, oh, don't worry. Don't worry, ma'am or sir. I've done this thousands of times. Well, the patient's sitting there saying, well, I really don't care about times one through thousand. I care about time thousand and one, the time you're going to do it to me. Because like we discussed yesterday, even if it's a buckle pit in your head, this is so simple to the patient. It still involves a needle and a drill and they're freaking out and you're thinking, ah, it's just a buckle pit. But again, like we said yesterday, you have to learn to treat patients the way they want to be treated, not the way you want to be treated. Something may not matter to you, but it matters to them. And, and just before I forget the thought, you know, we always know, and I'm sure you'll all agree that the customer or the guest is always right. Correct? Wrong. So Disney will actually, Disney, if you read stuff about Disney, they'll actually say the guest is not always right, but they are still your guest and you have to treat them as such. 
so that if somebody says to you, well, I want to, you know, I can't believe I had to wait 10 minutes. I want a free trip to Hawaii. Well, okay, that's great, sir, but uh, that's not happening. But, uh, you know, you have to just be able to say, oh, you know, I'm sorry that this happened, et cetera, et cetera. So let's go back to really some actionable points. Never answer an emotion with a fact. I'm so nervous about getting this filling done. I've done this a thousand times. So you've answered an emotion with a fact. Big mistake. Sometimes you'll be doing a history and you're so focused on the history, the patient will say, well, I've been in pain for five years. Oh, okay. Do you smoke? Okay. Someone just told you they've been in pain for five years. Don't move to the next question. Look them in the eye, depending on their age or, you know, you, you can gauge the room. Say that, say either that sucks or that's horrible. Our residents learn when they go to emerge, simply saying to the patient who's in emerge, nervous, that's a hospital, COVID, everything, say, I, I feel horrible. You've been in pain for so long. And so the residents will tell me, you know, people stare at them, you know, their eyes wide or a tear starts to form in their eye because somebody's actually obviously caring and paying attention. At the end of the day, people just want to be heard. When people go to therapy for the first time, they'll say, oh, it's amazing. I feel so much better. And then you're thinking, what could you have accomplished? It was the first session. But they had an opportunity to just get it all off their chest. Tell their story. And everybody has a story that people want to hear. So never answer an emotion with a fact. Read the room. You can't say the same things to everybody. It seems like it would be, you know, easy to interpret that and kind of implement that. But, you know, in practice, how do you go from, you know, being, you know, a third year dental student and never having talked to a patient? Where do you start to try to implement this kind of stuff? That's great. So it's fake it until you are it, as a yoga teacher told me, not till you make it till you are it and you have to become it. So what that involves is learning to look people in the eye, sitting heart to heart, sitting maybe a little lower than them, drawing diagrams, meet them where they are. And if it's a child, you talk to the child, the parent will listen. Don't ever talk to the parent and just talk over the child. Because even if the child's three, four, whatever, you focus on the patient, whoever that patient is. So that's number one. Number two, recognizing your emotional state and that of the patient. So let's talk about empathy. Everybody says in their interviews, I would be empathetic. And I always look at them and go, great. How would you do that? And you know, all of a sudden, all you hear is crickets in the background because nobody knows. <laughs> they just know to say, I'll be empathetic. They don't know what that means. Empathy is a, is a putting yourself in someone else's shoes. It's a suffering with. Compassion is a feeling sorry for, let me help you. You can't get compassion without empathy. And, and um, you know, William Osler, the great Canadian physician, which is interesting because he said this at, you know, the late 1800s, early 1900s. He said, you know, the good physician treats the disease. The great physician treats the patient that has the disease. And it's more important to know the patient who has the disease than the disease the patient has. Of course, I'm paraphrasing. And that's interesting that he said that you know, in the late 1800s and 1900s, where, you know, the doctor was God and you did whatever the doctor told you. So it's interesting that obviously he recognized this and that, you know, Abraham Varghese talks about touch in medicine and about listening and about this doctor during the Victorian times in England brought her child to be cared for and heard the, heard the mother's cough, saw the dirt in her shoes, listened to her accent, realized she worked in a chemical factory. And, you know, this woman bringing a small child shouldn't be worried about that small child because she's probably going to be dying of a lung disease that is typical in that factory. And that's without even examining the patient. 
it's that awareness. So the first thing is understanding your vagus nerve, your fight or flight. There's something called the polyvagal theory. Seth Poor just took over the sort of um, talking about this theory from his father, Stephen. And we know that we have our ventral and dorsal vagal nerves. Everybody's like, oh yeah, first year anatomy, you got to look that up. Okay. So, you know, you have 12 cranial nerves and I always joke, you know, with people say, do you ever feel like you have one foot on the gas, one foot on the brake? And the ones that say no, I always say, well, I want what you're taking or you're dead, you know, because you either are taking some really good drugs or you're just lying to yourself. So... What happens is your vagus nerve sends you into fight or flight or freeze. You can also get freeze in that hypoarousal state. So we have our dorsal vagal, which is our reptilian brain, you know, playing dead in the wild. We also have our ventral vagal, our modern vagus nerve, like, hey, Vlad, hey, Jury, hey, Christian, how's it going? We're having a conversation. Or in this case, a monologue, because I know our time is short. So uh, I'm just yakking away here. So recognizing people come to you, they're in a state of hyperarousal. You're in a state of hyperarousal. Like you said, Vlad, your third year, you're th sort of like, okay, just, just going to check my notes on my phone. And, and just I'm going to pull this picture up with all the instruments on display. Not for any reason, but I just yeah. want it there. Yeah. It and it's also up. important to realize early is on time. On time is on time is late. Late. Don't show up. Go to clinic early, set up your space. Put out all your instruments. As, as an instructor once did, he always would come up to us, take the top of the bib, fold it, and then put the chain a little closer so it looked neat. So when you call the instructor over, change the tray paper. Get rid of the instruments you're not using anymore. Change the bib. Clean the mirror. Have a mirror and explorer sitting on the side of the tray. Don't have the poor instructor come down and see the bibs like half covering the patient's face. There's bloody gauze everywhere. There's like instruments all over the place and they're hunting just to find a mirror. Be organized because when your clinic space is organized, your brain is organized. Preparedness. It's like the diamond cutter phenomenon, diamond cutter, not phenomenon, concept. Measure twice, cut once. So don't go into clinic at two o'clock when you start and start open, opening up your kits. People used to laugh at me. I used to leave lunch 15 minutes early, two o'clock, boom, I was done, set up. It looked like an operating room. Our oral surgery residents, the good ones always go. You can see they learn very quickly. They go ahead of the surgery and they stand with the, with the instruments, with the nurse, and they make sure everything's in the order we're going to use it. Preparedness. You just don't wing it. And think, oh, I'm having fun with my friends at lunch. I'll just like show up in the clinic at two. Then when clinic's almost over and you're not done, you start to freak out. So recognizing your state, you're in a state of hyperarousal, your patient's in a state of hyperarousal. Breathing helps. They've actually shown when you call out your emotional state, like let's say you say Christian is about to do his first endo. He's like, oh my God, I'm freaking, I'm nervous. So if you actually say I'm nervous out loud, you actually reduce the anxiety by 50%. And then you inhale for three or four, hold for one or two, exhale for five or six, hold for one or two. When your exhales exceed your inhales, what happens? Guys, what do you think happens? You slow your heart rate. So call out your emotion, slow your heart rate, get your patients to breathe with you. Do you know that when you give local, your heartbeat goes up about 10 points? every time. So say to the patient, let's breathe together. Let's do this little exercise. Now your hands and feet are islands of safety because they're not innervated by your vagus nerve. So hands on the table, feet on the floor, do your breathing. Say to the patient, breathe in with me, hold, breathe out, wiggle their cheek, rub their lip. And all of a sudden you're done the injection and you're calm. And you're going to say, hold your breath for a couple of seconds. I'm going to hold mine. 
close your eyes if you want. Maybe I'll close mine. And everybody's laughing because they're like, hell, don't close your eyes. You're giving the needle. So, you know, talk, 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 distract, distract, distract. That's why when you're giving, doing an alginate, you sit the patient up, you distract them. What happens? Because gagging is, it's, it's, it's a psychological phenomenon. It's, it's, unless there's a medical issue, it's not a physical phenomenon. So learning to breathe, learning to call out your emotion, learning that your patient is in a state of hyperarousal. And guess what? It's not about you. If they're angry, it's not, don't take it personally. It's easy to take it personally. When your instructor comes over and says in front of your patient, that crown margin on the distal looks a bit ragged. And you're like, oh God, you know, how do you go back to the patient, pick up the handpiece? They're looking up at you and going, uh, yeah. Look, feedback is not always delivered well, but it's still important because at the end of the day, if an instructor says your crown margin sucks, don't start defending yourself. <laughs> it either sucks or it doesn't. And there's a patient attached to that crown margin. So you have to learn to take your ego out of it. That's why at Apple, it's called fearless feedback. You have to take, you know, you did so well with that older lady this morning, Vlad, adjusting that denture, you know, and then at the end of the day, you know, Vlad, you were so rude to that teenage patient. You just didn't know what to say. You know, you were kind of short with them and you have to be able to take the good with the bad. So recognize your, your vagus state, recognize your patient's vagus state, learn to calm your vagus state by calling out your emotions and your breathing, learn to help your patients breathe. And then if you want, since, you know, we don't have a ton of time and I really want people to walk away with something, Danielle Offrey, OFRI writes a great book, what patients say, what doctors hear. And there is an amazing sort of way that she speaks to patients. And the first thing I do is I say to the patient, why have you come to see me? Not how are you or what do you, what do you want? <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not at Tim Hortons going like, what do you want? The crueler, you know, the Boston cream. What is it? What, like, what do you want? <laughs> you say, why have you come to see me? Tell me your story. Do you mind if I take some notes? And then they tell you their story. What if they say to you, Christian, oh, Dr. Christian, sometimes when I chew, my nose gets stuffed up. There's cracking in my ear. Last time I had a feeling my ankle got swelled up and you're sitting there going, holy crap, like what? Like, where do I even begin? So then you say to the patient, oh, that's interesting. Well, what are you struggling with the most? So you're there just to guide the conversation, not bias it. You're just there to say, oh, so it's been two weeks or three weeks. So let's say the patient's got rampant perio and they're like, can you close this space between my two front teeth? So you would say, oh, wow, you know, if we get all this tissue and bone healthy, you know, when we go to fix that space, it'll last longer, look better. Always acknowledge, don't roll your eyes, but just, you know, there's people who think they can cure, you know, cure bad behavior by just simply rolling their eyes. doesn't usually work that way. Um, and then you do a treatment plan and then you do a tree diagram. Well, you have a deep filling. If the filling's deep, we might have to, you know, we might end up into the pulp if we ended up in the pulp and explain this, draw a picture, obviously. You know, we may have to clean this out. You might need a root canal. Root canal takes this many appointments, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Or if the filling is right, rather deep, but the nerve is intact, we can medicate it. You always have to be aware if there's symptomology, whatever. Say to the patient, I, I don't want you to miss anything. And I want to make sure I've got everything down here because you don't want the patient feeling like a two-year-old that you're lecturing them. And then you say, so if, if the nerve is involved, I, or I can do this procedure or I'll refer you to a specialist called endodontist for what kind of procedure? And then they go root canal, right? Now, can the root canal be done always in one appointment? The patient will say no. And then you're getting them to teach it back to you. And then you say, does the plan make sense? Your patient will look to 
one side than the other. They may ask another question. They go, yeah, what about veneers? And you're thinking, wow, veneers. Yeah, big topic. Let's bring that up at the next, at the next uh, appointment. We're going to make a note of that, that you want to talk about that. And then you've said, does the plan make sense? Then you say, did I miss anything? Did I cover everything that you wanted to discuss today? Again, they may ask another question. And at the very end, you look at them and you don't say, thanks for the opportunity to treat you because that's about you. That's about you getting credits. That's about you one day making money because it's, it's, a, it's an, what is it? It's a privilege to look after your own needs. It's an honor to look after the needs of somebody else. And remember, you look at your patients when you're done and you say, thank you for letting me look after you today. And watch what happens. They will stare at you because no one's ever said that to them. You've calmed them down through their breathing. You've explained things and asked them if they understand. You ask them what they're struggling with the most. You ask them if there was anything that you missed. You thank them for letting you look after you. What do you think happens when they leave or they walk out to the receptionist's office when you're first graduated? No one's ever going to say they didn't explain anything to me. Because in your head, you may think, oh, I did a great job. Well, the patient's sitting there going, what the hell? I have no idea what you're talking about. So, And patients are just big children. They're embarrassed to ask questions. So if you follow those steps, use that tree diagram, recognize your emotional state as well as the state of the patient. In order to be able to be empathetic, you need to recognize your emotional state. If Jury comes to me as, as a physician with a cold, or let's say she has jaw problems, and I say, well, what's it like during the day for you? Are you able to eat? Do you find it embarrassing? What's it like living with the problem? That's empathy. You can reduce the severity of cold symptoms just simply by asking questions about what it's like to have that cold and how's it interfering with your life by 17%. What is the placebo effect? Hope, endorphins, giving someone hope. If you say this narcotic, yeah, my word, oh, I don't know. Sometimes, eh, I don't know, it's not that great. You'll reduce its effect. So you have to realize your words matter, the tone matters, your eye contact matters, which is hard because you're of a generation, you know, your entire conversation is sup, KK, later. And you've just had a whole conversation. I have learned to have a conversation entirely, was it GIFs or GIFs? What, are you, what is the right way to say that? That is a debate in its own. Okay. So a GIF, GIF, whatever, don't at me, whatever it is, is right, I don't know. So um, I can have a whole conversation in that. I think it's funny that you could do that or in emojis or whatever, but it, it speaks to the fact that we've lost the art of conversation. So hopefully that little construct, and I can send you, a, I can send you two slides to share with your listeners. It works and it helps me. And I've been practicing longer than you've been alive. And I've, you know, I've changed the way I talk to patients within the last couple of years because I learned about all the mistakes I've made about how I may have come off as rude or distant or, or uncaring, or sometimes you don't even realize because it's that self-awareness that we all lack because we're too busy looking on Facebook and Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok for everybody's opinion of ourselves instead of looking inward and figuring out who the hell we are. So how did you learn this? Like, it, 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 was it just a crap ton of trial and error, like failures, or was it just reading or... No question. I just woke or... up one morning with the knowledge. No, I uh, <laughs> wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great if you could just go to the gym once, you have an eight pack and you're done. <laughs> yep. Been to the gym. <laughs> Don't have to go again. Um, it was a lot of trial and error and a lot of mistakes, a lot of maybe patients getting angry with you. A lot of, you know, maybe your friends getting angry with you. 
I had a friend tell me, he says, you know, you scare people. I was like, oh, do I? I didn't think they cared. Like if I said this, that or the other. And that was a bit of a wake up call too. also having a couple of ulcers from the stress of practice, practicing a way that wasn't really true to myself. It was a way I thought I should be practicing. So I did a lot of reading. Danielle Offrey, her books, OFRI, she's got great books, you know, like there's four or five of them, I think. And her website, she's got great reading. She, you should sign up for her newsletter. She's amazing. And you learn a lot from her about what it's like to be a healthcare professional. So, and it's also reading about psychology, reading about things, Christian, like the polyvagal theory, reading about how the vagus nerve works, reading about the neuroscience of communication. It's not just, you know, there's a reason it works. For instance, Chris Voss is a former hostage negotiator and he talks about, so does Daniel Pink. He's a marketer. He talks that they talk about mirroring. And we talked about that yesterday. Let's say you're on an uncomfortable date or you're, you know, uh, you know, one day when parties are more frequent in person and you're struggling to have a conversations. And let's say you say to somebody, if I say to you, Christian, let's do it now. So, Christian, what do you stress most about about school? And don't say everything. Uh, workload, maybe. Workload? Yeah, like the amount of work they give you and the, uh, the lack of time. Lack of time for... Oh, God. <laughs> got you. Got you on the hook. Yeah, it's got me. <laughs> I, I can keep going all day. You want me to take over? So- yeah, but you see what happened because when I say, when you said right, workload, right. all I did was say workload mm-hmm. and that makes you have to explain what I, what you meant. And then if you say, I don't have time, I said, you know, no time. And then you're like, yeah, I have no time for this. I can't see my friends. You know, I don't have a social life. And I'm like, so you have no social life? And you're like, yeah, I have a day-to-day. Oh so usually, you know what I mean? All <laughs> it's I like a why. It's like, yeah. uh, you can answer every sentence with why. <laughs> yeah. But it is that why, and that's the Simon Sinek thing. Always start with why, not how or what. Why have Hmm. you come to see me today? So imagine, I always use the example of the real estate agent. So let's say, you know, Jury's about to sell her brother's house while he's away and uh, (laughs) comes home, sees a sign on the lawn and goes, what the hell's happening here? Um, (laughs) So Jury's like, I thought I'd buy myself a condo. So I come and I say to Jury, thank you for the opportunity to list your house. And then the second agent comes and says, Jory, thank you so much for letting me look after you during what I know is a stressful time, but hopefully an exciting one as you find your new home. So the first one is all about them. The second agent is all about you. And it's so simple. It's common sense, but common sense is hard until someone points it out to you. You know, if you look at decision-making theory, and this is another thing I love to talk about, it's very difficult when you're in dental school and you're getting all these opinions on Instagram and all social media and your friend said, well, my friend's brother's uncle's dry cleaner is a dentist, uh, his brother. And you're like, what? Okay. I'm like, all right. And you're thinking this person's an authority, but decision-making theories are very interesting. One is satisficing, which I love. Satisficers will just go, oh, I need a new toaster. I'm going to go online. Top four toasters in 2021. That one looks pretty. I'll buy the pretty toaster. You know, it has a nice color or whatever. It looks retro. Maximizers will study toasters for a good three months. Consumer report. We'll look at every toaster ever invented. 
that does things that they don't even need. What does a toaster really do? Makes toast. Okay, let's keep it simple. And at the end, and there's a genetic component to how people do this, maximizers are less happy. They thought by going through every permutation, every every example, they'll be happier. Satisficers are happier because they didn't waste their whole life looking for a damn toaster. So that's number one. So happiness in terms of that regard. Now let's look at um, the Semmelweis effect. Semmelweis, you know, Semmelweis University, famous doctor. He said, don't examine one woman in the maternity ward, then go right to the next woman. Childbed fever. And everybody said, I'm a nobleman. Are you saying I carry disease? He ended up penniless in an insane asylum. Driven there because Semmelweis effect is where I say something to you that goes against what you believe and instantaneously you reject it without even thinking, just instantaneously. And look, we have this problem now. Oh, I've done my research about, you know, about the pandemic. No, you're not a PhD immunologist in a lab. You've just Googled a lot of stuff. Let's not, con let's not confound Googling with research. Okay. There's a difference. All right. And also you have to realize your generation is very, is very suspect to the butterfly defect where you're looking up a research project or a topic and you go online and you find something that has two words that you're looking for. You're like, ah, that's a good source. So you, you just flit like a butterfly from source to source until something looks reasonable and you just glom onto that and think it's the gospel. Then we have cognitive dissonance. Maybe you've been doing something wrong all this time and some, and then you're like, oh, there's no way I can't be. No, there's no way I was doing this wrong. There's no way I've been studying wrong. There's no way I've been studying the wrong thing the whole time because your brain can't deal with that stress and that discord. And then cognitive dissonance enters the room with doctors Dunning and Kruger. And Dunning Kruger is where you're too, you, know, you just lack the insight to realize how bad you are at something. And if you want an example of Dunning Kruger, go to karaoke. You know, somebody getting up there thinking they're Prince going purple rain. And then you're like, and they get off stage. They're like, I killed that man. It's like, oh yeah, you killed it. All right. <laughs> it's like dead. So, <laughs> so you have Dunning-Kruger, cognitive dissonance, Semmelweis effect, satisficing. Then you throw in one of my other favorite ones where it's not seeing the forest for the trees, which is the survivorship bias. So Abraham Wald, W-A-L-D, during World War II was working with the Americans and these fighter planes would come back riddled with bullet holes. So the Americans were like, oh, so now we know where we need to put extra protection. And so Abraham Wald said, no, you need to put extra protection in between where the bullet holes are. And they're like, no, you're wrong. And he said, these planes made it back. The ones that got shot in between these bullet holes didn't make it back. That's where you need to patch the planes. So we're all sitting here laughing, going common sense, common sense, common sense. But until someone points it out to you, it's not so common. And I have younger dentists come to me all the time, like, I can't do a bridge. Like, I've only done a few crowns. And at some point, you have to realize you have to dive in, take your time, be prepared, learn, or you're never going to move forward. What if I hurt somebody? What if I, if you go in and you always have to remember, and I wrote about this in one of my blogs about, about, um, about the results. And this is a yoga philosophy that was taught to me by uh, a great yoga philosopher, yoga teacher, Hallie Schwartz. You don't own the results. You can only do what you do with care, you know, with care, awareness, um, kindness, and consideration, and the results are going to be what they're going to be. You don't own them. So when you're focused so much on what that prep is going to look like or that crown prep, you've ignored your pay, paying attention to the patient. You've ignored exactly what your hands are doing because this is another thing in yoga. 
your mind and body disconnect. Have you ever driven somewhere and all of a sudden you get there and you realize, whoa, whoa how'd I get here? Mind-body disconnection. One of the greatest treatments for acute post-traumatic stress disorder is what? Yoga. Your mind realizes, you're teaching your mind that your, your behavior matters. That you decide to make a movement with your arms and your body and you are in control. Because PTSD is when something bad happens to you, your brain doesn't process it and it always seems like it just happened. Your brain does not know temporally it was 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. It's always like it was yesterday which we'll talk about in a second if you can remind me, because I'll forget. So you get overwhelmed and start looking at every permutation, and then you just get frozen. So that's number one. That's the satisfizer maximizer. Someone tells you maybe you've been looking at this in the wrong way, or, and you're thinking, what? You mean I've been, I've been thinking about how I do my preps wrong for the last three years? That's impossible. So you reject it instantaneously. So it's Semmelweis effect, cognitive dissonance. I can't have been wrong. This is what I've been doing the whole time. What? This is impossible. And then, you know, survivorship bias where you just don't see the forest for the trees. And also Semmelweis effect about rejecting an opinion right away is also your ego. And there's a great book by Ryan Holiday, although it's a little repetitive, but ego is the enemy. And it's true. You know, somebody gives you feedback. Yeah, they may be rude about it or not ideal, but it's still, there's a grain of truth in that feedback and you have to listen to it. Otherwise, you, you're disassociating your dentistry from the patient. It's just a prep. And this is a big problem when you're talking amongst your friends. You go, oh, I got an endo at two. No, I have my light. I have the nicest patient, Emily, at two and she needs an endo. Don't refer to your patients as procedures. That's another thing because then you start to, it's very mechanical. The patient doesn't connect with you because you're not connected with the patient. When things go wrong, and let me tell you, oh, they do. When things go wrong, when you have that connection with the patient and you're very open and honest and you say, I'm sorry this happened to you, you know, you know, medical legally, they say, never say, sorry, I did this. And it also, it doesn't ring true because then it's about, it's more about you. It's you're, you're trying to assuage your guilt. So it is, I think it's, it's not medical legal. I think it's important to say, I'm sorry, this happened to you. I'm sorry. I'm gutted that this, I feel horrible that this happened to you. And that's important to be, be able to recognize that you're going to make mistakes, but it's also about the decatastrophizing meaning. And I wrote about this recently. So let's say you, you pulp expose. And I joked with you yesterday when, you know, back when I was in dental school, if you pulp exposed, you know, officials came in and nobody saw you for like three days. And then when you reemerged and walked back into the cafeteria, everybody was, you know, whispering under the breath, oh, she pulp exposed. He's the guy that pulp exposed. You know, so it was like this walk of shame, you know, sort of thing. So let's say you're drilling away and you pulp expose. You're about to have a very crappy conversation with the patient. First of all, recognize you're in a state of hyperarousal now. Anything you say or do is your amygdala, your smoke detector talking, not your frontal lobe, not your objective thought processes. This is you going, oh my God, oh my God, what did I do wrong? You know, So you freak out. So you have to calm yourself. You have to breathe. Maybe you have to excuse yourself from the patient once everything's stable and organized. Sit them up, take the light out of their eyes and say, oh, I just have to grab something. I'll be right back. Go breathe. Especially when you're taking out a tooth and there's a root 
flipping around. Go away and breathe. It's like the crossword puzzle phenomenon. You can't get a clue. You go away. The next day, you're like, oh, and you fill it in. You need that space to get out of that state of hyperarousal and into your window of tolerance. Then you go back and you say, you know, because you would have said in advance, hopefully the decay is very deep. This is what happens as I remove that decay. So I'm talking maybe a carious exposure, but there's also mechanical exposures. And at the end of the day, you're going to have to have a crappy conversation with the patient. So you have to say to yourself, is anybody dead? No. Is anybody going to die? No. If there is a pulp exposure, is this the end? Is the tooth going to have to be removed? No. Peel the layers of the overwhelm away. I'm going to have to have a crap conversation. I'm going to feel horrible. I have to explain to the patient, use your tree diagram, explain, look them in the eye, say, I am so sorry this happened to you. Be honest. Don't keep drilling away and going, oh, maybe it's not blood. You know, <laughs> maybe it's red decay. <laughs> yeah, keep telling yourself that. So learn to stop, learn to breathe, have those conversations. And at the end of the day, it may need endo. Did anybody die? No. So it's, it, you know, when I read this, eventually there, there's a book called Letting Go by, I think it's David Hawkins, uh, Michael Hawkins, Hawkins. It's called Letting Go. So anyways, some of it's a little weird toward the end, but um, he talks about, let's say, let's say Christian loses his job and he's freaking out. And I say to Christian, are you going to miss your parking spot where you at, at work? And you're like, no, what do I care? Park my car anywhere. What about that place you always went for coffee? Well, there's lots of places to go for coffee. What about the friends you had lunch with every day? Well, I can still call them and we can still hang out. Okay. So you see what I'm doing? Everything associated with the job that you just lost, we're just kind of peeling it away. And at the end, it's sort of like you're starting to calm down. You're in your window of tolerance. You're breathing. You realize, okay, my life is not over. Because when you pulp expose, you think your life is over. You think you're the worst dentist in the world. You think that, you know, you're never going to accomplish anything that, you know, people are going to be pointing at you on the street. It's like when people walk down the street with a pimple, they think, oh my God, everybody's looking at me. Trust me. Everybody in the world is looking at their phones. They're not staring at you. That's your ego. <laughs> you know, they're, they're far, they're far more interested in their phones than they are your pimple. Okay. They really don't care. <laughs> so it's learning to recognize your emotional state, that of the patient, learning to have those open conversations. The minute something's not going right, tell them, say, this is not going the way I like for these reasons. And remember to deconstruct the overwhelm. And yeah, you're going to have some crap conversations through your entire life. So get used to having them. The world will not end. What do you call someone who breaks a root? An oral surgeon. What do you call someone who separates a file? An endodontist. Can you make an omelet without breaking eggs? No. So you need to break some eggs to make the damn omelet. That should be your tagline. Yeah, exactly. Look, it's oh. really, um, it, honestly, it's really interesting, you know, how you explain this sort of, you know, perception, but you're going to make mistakes, right? Make the mistakes. Like if you're going to make them, like you don't tell yourself that you're not going to, because that's just going to lead you to worrying more and overthinking it. Right. Exactly. A hundred percent because we, be, we freeze ourselves. We go into this state of hyper arousal where we freak out and then we're immobile. We can't even act. We're acting with our amygdala, our smoke detector. We're not acting with our frontal lobe. So yeah, you're going to make mistakes. Yeah. Is it going to be sucky? Yeah. Is the world going to end? No.
and you're gonna you're gonna wake up the next day and you're gonna go at it. You're gonna do better. It's like getting a traffic ticket. You're gonna drive a little slower the next day. <laughs> you're gonna be a little more aware. You're gonna realize your mind and body were not connected. You were flipping out, and your hands were working without without being connected to your brain. What happens when you're cooking and there's things bubbling and everything is, and then something bubbles over and then something's in the oven. You're just in a state of hyperarousal. There's too much chaos. That's why a clean work environment, an organized work environment, clean everything up before the demonstrator comes over for your own brain, for the patient, because the patient's going to go, look how neat and tidy everything is. This is fantastic. The instructor's going to come over and go, look how neat and tidy everything. Everything looks fantastic. And it makes you better because it gives you a moment to, when you're setting up those instruments, that's your prep time. That's getting your brain in order. If you've seen Olympian, Olympics, uh, blah, 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 Olympic skiers at the top of the hill before their run, which they practiced on a million times, what do they do? They close their eyes and you see their body moving through the, through the course because they've done it a million times. Preparedness, organization, recognizing your emotional state, speaking to the patient, like I said, in that particular order, which helps you organize your thoughts. Because when you're young and in school, you're freaking out every day. And that's normal. And recognize that it's normal. And be honest, you know, when the three of you talk after, say, yeah, I had the worst day ever. I was freaking out. I love in an interview, I say, what procedures stress you out the most? And I still remember this, this person was applying to a specialty and I was on the committee. And they said, oh, I'm quite comfortable with all my procedures. I'm thinking, okay, well, you lack complete self-awareness because you're, you're fooling yourself if nothing, nothing stresses you. Be honest with yourself. Stop looking at Instagram and getting your opinion of yourself from others and thinking that what their lives look like is reality. And again, even if you tell yourself, oh, I know it's BS. Oh, I know it's just performative. Oh, I know they're posting their best thing. Your brain doesn't know. It's just releasing chemicals. And as I said to you, if some really good looking uh, you know, trainer with an eight pack on a Monday morning posted, posted bloated stomach and said, you know, I went out for Mexican on the weekend. It was, I had a date with somebody new. I got bloated. I said stupid things. She didn't like me. Um, she even commented on my breath. And then here I am Monday morning and it was a crap weekend. You'd be like, I'll subscribe to this guy. He's, you know, this guy's honest. <laughs> you know, this guy's telling the truth. Be truthful to yourself as no matter how much it hurts. And be truthful to others. Why do you think Alcoholics Anonymous to this day is still so successful? What's the first thing people have to do? They have to admit they have, themselves, right? No, they have to get up and admit it to everybody. Uh -huh. And thereby admitting, first you're admitting it to yourself, but then you get up and you have to admit that you have a problem to everybody. And remember, so what, what did we just, sorry? So what if they're comfortable knowing that like, it's okay to uh, make mistakes? So you ask, uh, your applicants come, you're interviewing and yeah. you ask, uh, which, which procedures make you, uh, the most uncomfortable. And then they say, none, I'm pretty comfortable with all procedures, but that doesn't mean they're experts in those procedures. That just means no. they're except uh, they're like comfortable knowing that they know 99% and that 1% they'll know is going to happen eventually. Well, it is what it is. The question is what stresses you? 
And if you're saying no procedure stresses you, that's pretty unrealistic. Number one, number two, it's important to know. Well, you have to know what you know, Christian. You also Uh, have to know what you don't know. The scary part is not knowing what you don't know. Yeah. It's that awareness. One of our greatest dentists who, uh, is has gone on to a spectacular career who we who we accepted during the interview they said what was your worst day in dental school and he said when i failed one of my restorative exams who wants to say that in an interview admit that you like failed restorative and he did and he was honest and not only did he say what he felt like he said what he learned from it and today he is a spectacular clinician who we took and he, he was probably one of the greatest residents we've ever had. One of the most kindful, respectful people. And it was that honesty with himself and with us, which is, oh I God. know Christian, you're like, there's no way in hell I would ever tell anybody. I build no, 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 I was, uh, I was, I was in clinic last week and an instructor asked me, they're like, do you feel ready? And I'm like, you know what? I do feel ready because I don't know what I don't know. So I don't know what, what like I should be stressing for. So therefore <laughs> I feel ready in what I do know, <laughs> but, but well, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to say you're uncomfortable, you know? No, you're supposed you to are, say, but I'm as ready as I can be. I've yes. got a lot to learn. I am nervous. I have butterflies in my stomach. My chest is a little tight and I'm kind of, and maybe that's a bit of excitement because a little bit of stress is good because stress is a motivator. It gets you, gets your ass moving in the morning. So you have to be say, there's nothing wrong with saying, yeah, I feel prepared. I've done all the readings. I've done everything. And then realize your first patient's procedure could kick your ass down the street. It could happen. And it'll be a great story to tell after, and you'll you'll pick yourself up. Like you said, fake it till you till you uh, till you be it. Right. <laughs> you have to because you can't go in front of the patient and say we're going to do a filling today, and uh, I'm gonna I think I'm gonna f- do some freezing, and whew, and uh, yeah, this is tricky. And you know, if you're muttering under your breath or whatever, but that's because the night before you went through everything, you got there early, you put out all your instruments, and by doing that you're calm and go, you know what? I am prepared. And that's actually, Christian, you brought up something really good. It's you, you don't say like Nike, Oh, I can do it. Just do it. You actually have to be interrogative. You have to sit there and go, can I do this? Can I really do this? And then you have to answer it and say, no, I've, I've prepared. I've done this countless times in preclinic. Yeah. It's going to be different in the mouth. And I have to talk to the patient, but yeah, I'm ready. I I'm ready for whatever this brings. I can do this. It's not my first, not my first rodeo here. I can, you know, I can do this and you're going to learn, but you have to be interrogative. Don't listen to this social media BS going, just do it. I can do it because that's, that's not how your brain works. Your brain doesn't work that way. Your brain needs to be convinced. You need to be convinced because you're not convinced. Are you? You really hate social media. eh? (laughs) I don't, you know what? And I was thinking about this this morning. Social media is phenomenal for in, in the right doses, like any medication. Think of social media as a medication. Here's a good one. I just came up with this crap. Think of social media as a medication. Okay. This may be a crap analogy, but hopefully it resonates. Social media is a medication. If you take any medication too much, what's going to happen? It's going to screw you up. It's going to affect your health. So when you take social media in doses, 
and you restrict what you're looking at, you know, you want to go on social, you want to go on Instagram and look up Central Park, Central Ohio oral pathology. She's amazing. Or you want to look up, um, or you want to look up uh, Ryan No, the periodontal resident, uh, hard palate, uh, who draws these beautiful, um, you know, uh, drawings of uh, what periodontal procedures look like, where you're actually going to learn something and see someone being honest. Um, you're going to see someone show a procedure that didn't work ideally, or what the struggle was with the procedure. You know, we, you, that's where you want to learn. But if you constantly look at these performative people who just show 10 veneers all the time, I mean, yeah, they don't show the patient going, I hate the collar, or they don't show the patient the next week coming with the veneer like flicked off. <laughs> they don't show that. If they did, I would follow them. So take it in the appropriate dosage. Be careful which social media you're taking. Again, if you think of social media as a medication, you'll be a little more a little bit more careful in what you're in what you're consuming. And remember, you don't eat cake every day, do you? Because why? It makes you sick. Feels good in the moment, but after you're like, oh, I don't feel so good. So recognize that your brain's not doing well on this stuff. It's addicted. People grab their phone first thing in the morning. First thing in the morning, drink a glass of water. Maybe just meditate for five minutes. Just close your eyes and just just count backwards from 500. That's meditation. And then don't touch your phone for an hour. The first hour of your day, don't touch your phone. Have a routine. Make your bed. Just drink what people say, my morning routine. Like, I really care. Just drink some water. Count backwards from 100 with your eyes closed to give yourself a moment of peace. Breathe. Do your breathing exercises. And then don't touch your phone for an hour. Get up, do a couple stretches, make your coffee, whatever. Walk around, look outside, see the day. You know, rub your face and go, you know, I'm ready to start and get going. But we, the first thing, if the first thing you do is grab your phone and the last thing you do is grab your phone and that blue light is going to kill you because your brain thinks it's daytime and then you're going to clench and grind because your brain is keeping your brain awake. These are all things that kill us. And I recognized at my age that I was just sitting mindlessly looking at Instagram all the time. So what did I do? Deleted it. I only go on if I want to post something for somebody else or I want to check a message or something. Otherwise, I'm not on it. I have language apps now on my phone. I'll go do a language exercise. Make your, like, occupy your hands. Do something else and just, you know, have, have plasticine at home. You see me playing with this, like, wiry, rubbery thing. Like, just do something to occupy your mind and engage your mind and... Engage your mind and body, reconnect them, reintroduce themselves to each other. It's it's like weird how applicable what you're saying is to us because we're going into clinic right now. We're all a little bit nervous about it. Um, so just having you kind of talk through this kind of stuff for myself at least is very calming. So thank you for that. Oh, that's why I'm here. It, it, it's it's really really good. We are getting close to an hour. So I wanted to ask yeah. Chris or Jury if they have any, you know, burning ideas or questions that they want to leave off uh, the conversation with Bruce with. Uh, well, first, I just wanted to say that I'm finding this very inspiring in the sense that this integration of wellness and compassion and empathy into healthcare. Um, I think that very often we find that you know, like there's this system in place and we have to do things this way because that's the way it's always been done. And the fact that you can take like the things that you're interested in, like yoga or the language that you're learning, Italian or meditation and 
bring it into your practice, not only allowing it to make you a better person and grow, but also a better clinician and be able to connect more with your patients, the person that's in front of you. I find that um, so inspiring because one of the most beautiful things about dentistry is that we do have autonomy over the way we run our practice and we can integrate our interests and our values into our practice. Um, So I wanted to say, first of all, thank you for sharing all of that. And that's beautifully said. I've seen dentists. I know this one dentist I visited. He had this one massive operatory, played jazz music. He had one chair. He had one staff member. And there's a dentist in my building, I believe. I think she has, I think she has two chairs. And she has, I think, one staff or two staff. She's making a very acceptable living for her. She's very happy because after a certain amount of money, Jury, they've proven you're not any happier, even though you think you may have nicer toys. And and Ryan and Sean Acar, Sean, uh, what's his name? A, uh, oh, I'll I'll look it up. This guy, fellow Sean Acor, I think his name or Acor. It's called the happiness advantage. When I get into dental school, I'll be happy. When I get into a specialty, I'll be happy. When I open my first office, I'll be happy. Well, you're never happy. You keep moving the bar. Yeah. So you, you said something very profoundary in that, yes, you, can, you have the autonomy to practice the way you want, but that has to come from where? Not from the outside, has to come from the in, exactly, comes from inside of you. Do what resonates with you. Yeah, I love that. It, this, um, you know, I think sometimes we forget that when we are well, uh, when we are introspective and reflective and we're doing things in our day and in our life that make us happy, um, we do better and we do better for our patients or for the people we're working with. And um, your plants are happier, your dog's happier, you know what I mean? (laughs) At the end of the day, you're going to have crappy days. You're going to have good days. You're going to have days where you feel like GV Black, the you know the father of dentistry, and you're going to feel like GV Hack on the rest of the days. Like you just feel like you're the worst dentist in the world. That's why you have friends. That's why you have me. That's why you have my phone number. You have my email. Anybody, call me. I don't care. Anytime. People do all the time, and just talk it out, and you'll and you'll feel better, and recognize what's working for you and what's not. And when it's working for you, you you'll be happy. You'll I don't like happier. You'll be more content, and. Uh, because uh, happiness is a happiness and balance. Like everybody knows when I'm looking for balance in my life, I'm like by a scale. I mean, there is no such thing as balance. It's just, you know, you're juggling the best you can, but remember it has to be true to you and you're going to have good days. You're going to have bad days, but on balance should be okay. And fill that toolbox of resiliency. Meditation is not clearing your mind of all thoughts. Cause you'd be dead. Meditation is simply acknowledging your thoughts and not letting them control you and just count backwards from a hundred with your eyes closed or stare down the tip of your nose. Everybody meditates when you're drilling a crown prep for the first time. And then all of a sudden you stop, you dismiss the patient. You're like, I gotta go to the bathroom. I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. That was meditation. You had taken your five senses and sort of blocked out everything else and focused on the task at hand. You were in flow. Christian, anything? uh, I don't know if I've scared you, Christian, or. uh... (laughs) (laughs) No, I, uh, this is like a more personal question, but like you, 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 like you've changed your career outlook. Like you started off dental student, then ortho, and now you have a large workload right now, but it seems like you do it. You like handpicked to do everything that you want to do, everything that you like to do, everything that makes you content. So what, what, like, I know everyone's is different and this is not gonna, um, 
and this is not going to change anyone's life, but like, what makes you, what wakes you up in the morning? What makes you want to get out of bed? What makes you content? Like, what do you look for? I, <laughs> that's no, that's great. Like, I just want to learn. I once had a patient who I still, I have so many patients I still keep in touch with. You know, there's patients I've diagnosed that have had brain surgery, you know, from facial pain patients. And <laughs> I ended up treating one uh, wonderful lady. I treated her kids. I go over to her place for dinner. Like, it's that connectedness. Like, we've become friends after well, long years after the fact. And um, so for me, it's that connection with people. And if you ask anybody, you know, all these people who, who have had illustrious careers, you know, like, you know, I remember Hillary Clinton said something. She interviewed some older lady that was a big mentor for her. And she says, at the end of the day, things are going to come and go. It's the experiences you have and the people you meet. That's why I always tell people, if, you have, if you're grateful for an experience or a person during the day, write it down. It sounds kind of corny, but write it down. You're going to have a list of things that you're grateful for. Look at it every once in a while. You're going to be like, and your brain's going to relive it. If somebody sends you a nice email, put it in an archive. Have your nice email archive. Because when you're having a bad day, read them to show you're not, you're not terrible. So for me, Christian, what wakes me up? So this patient, she says, I fear I will not live long enough to learn everything I want to learn. This is what she said to me. And I, I want to learn every language in the world. <laughs> like I, I just want to learn things. I want to absorb information. And for me, it's just learning new skills, learning new, whether it's how to bake, which to me is the ultimate science. Um, and then people enjoy it. People enjoy the science. Um, just learning new skills. For me, learning, 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 I just find fascinating. Learning, learning a new language, learning about a new concept, learning, a new, learning about someone's story, whether it be a patient or watching something on Netflix. Just, I just get excited to learn new things because it just stimulates your mind and you're just, wow, there's more out there than just you know, what's staring in front of my face all the time. So I want to learn new things. I want to hear about people's lives. I just, I, I, and be able to speak every language. Obama once said, if you could have a super, someone asked him if you could have a superpower, what would it be? He said, to be able to speak every single language. Why? Because you can connect with everybody. So Bruce Freeman, uh, you know, a lifelong learner, a yogi and a baker. <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily great at any of them, but okay. But you know. So, Bruce, you mentioned people can reach out to you. How how yeah. how can uh, how can people contact? Um, they can email me. My my email is my name, Bruce B R U C E, at uh, D R B V F. So D is in doctor, R is in Roger, B is in Bruce, V is in Victor, F is in Freeman. dot com. And uh, I mean, if you Google me, you'll find me somewhere. And I'll send you a list. I already sent you a list of everything I've sort of written and talked about. And then I'll send you those two slides about how to speak to your patients. Um, that you can share with your share with your listeners, um, and who I hopefully have not alienated or bored in the last hour. Um, and, and I apologize if I'm sort of like, you know, throwing up all this information because we have a, such a short time, and I just want to be able to teach you guys everything and just try and make your lives a little less stressful, and realize that you're going to be fine and you're going to do well. And uh, so I'll send that off. And if anybody ever wants to reach out, that's great. And as I said, I'm happy to do uh, a one-hour. Uh, lecture that I have on the on the neuroscience of mindful communication, just to cement and solidify a lot of the things we talked about here today. So if you'd ever like to organize that, I'm happy to do it. Absolutely. 
Thank you very much, Bruce. It was a pleasure talking to you. Please check out debbieacademy.ca. Bruce talked about a lot of great resources. We're going to post them all onto the podcast page for that. Uh, so go check them out. We're going to list all his books. We're going to send all the resources out that he sent us. Other than that, check out Debbie Academy on Instagram. I think it's at debbie.learn at the moment. And thanks for listening. We'll see you in the next episode.